Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with James Waring, the finance manager of Ten Calais Conservation Alliance, often referred to as TCA. Finance manager does not do justice to the many things James does for TCA, but I'll let him talk about that in greater detail later in the conversation. This will be an exciting episode for a couple of reasons. First, we've never had a guest from the Pacific region, and we will soon learn all about tree kangaroos, a fascinating and an adorable species living in near extinction in Papua New Guinea. Tenkele Conservation Alliance operates in the Torricelli Mountains in the northwest of Papua New Guinea and has just celebrated its 20-year anniversary. The NGO was founded to protect three species of critically endangered tree kangaroos, the Tenkele, the Waimang, and the Grizzle. When TCA started, the numbers for the Tenkele and Waimang species were as low as 100. Now, thanks to a hunting moratorium, community engagement, and awareness programs, both species are around three to 400 strong. The grizzled is still endangered, but also is, has seen a recovery in recent years. TCA's work has expanded to bringing the benefits of conservation to local communities, another topic we'll touch on later today. James, with all that being said, welcome to Voices of Nature. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm rather humbled actually by given the, the previous guests that have been on your podcast that I've been invited, so thank you very much for having me. Well, it is our pleasure. And as I said, we're, we're really excited to have this conversation. So, you know, and I think one of the reasons I'm so excited about this is, as you've previously mentioned to me, you recently changed careers. I mean, you left a very stable, very successful career behind to dedicate all of your time and, and energy to preserving nature in a, in a very far flung place, Papua New Guinea. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to this really, really monumental career change. Yeah, I mean, it's a very rather circuitous route to a conservation career. I studied classics at university and, and then converted to law, qualifying as a solicitor in London last year. But I felt, felt rather disengaged really with the commercial world. And the move was about wanting to find an opportunity to do something I, I cared about and I felt was important. And my interest in conservation was really sparked by a five-month stint in the Seychelles after my studies, and it gave me the importance, really, of living a life entwined with and closely related to nature. So the more I, the more I thought about this and the more I read about it, I realized that this was the career path and the, the life change, really, that I wanted to, to give my life a purpose and to do something I, I really cared about. James, just to, you know, to go a little deeper, I mean, what... What brought you to Papua New Guinea, of all places? It was actually, it, it wasn't quite so random as spinning a globe and, and putting a pin somewhere, but it wasn't actually that far off. I, I wanted something remote. I felt that the, the experience I had in the Seychelles, which was on a, an island called Arid, which was a quarter of a mile wide and a mile long, and that, that remoteness was something that really appealed to me. It gave me the best chance of feeling at one with and connecting with the natural world. So I wanted to find something similar. I also felt that, I guess, being from a legal background and having no scientific degree or training, 
I felt the conservation world in, I guess, Europe or perhaps America a little more, a little more closed off. Um, but very grateful for coming across TCA, who were very open actually to the different skills that I guess I would bring as a lawyer and to, yeah, to experience conservation outside of, I guess, our usual familiarity with it. Well, before we talk a little bit about TCA and its mission and its role, just take us into Papua New Guinea. I mean, as I mentioned before, we've had precious few guests on the podcast from the Pacific area. So what is the country like? What's the environment in which you're, you're living? What's the community like in which you're living? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's one that I'm really keen to, to answer because Papua New Guinea, I can't speak for America, but especially in Europe, can sometimes have a rather poor reputation. It's seen as this frontier land between you know, humans and nature, but also humans and, I guess, our societies and more, some would term, primitive wrongly societies and it seems quite a dangerous place quite a um unsecure place but my experience here is is exactly the opposite it's a the people here have been absolutely have been completely welcoming at, at every village we've been to just really heartfelt acts of kindness throughout the time i've been here uh, and as you can imagine the nature nature is wonderful it hits a it hits a cognitive spot that you don't really it's never really activated by life, I guess, in, in the cities of London or in much of Europe or the Western world. The, the mountains and the rainforest and the, the views of rainforest as far as you can see across the horizon really is something that, that touches the spot both in your, your heart and in your mind. And now tell us a bit about your, your role at TCA, but perhaps more important about TCA's role in Papua New Guinea and preserving the habitats and ecosystems of the country. Yeah, so my role, as you alluded to, is finance manager, but that, as much as anything, is a, it's a job title for, for the contract's sake. So yes, I am responsible for the maintaining of our financial records and for monitoring pay and cash income and expenditure, as well as the governance and policy sides. <laughs> All the exciting loyalty stuff is, hasn't been left behind, unfortunately. But it's also a very wide brief. It's assisting with and managing projects um, that we run and also the biodiversity side of it, something I'm really keen on. We've got a, a wonderful app which our rangers use to record biodiversity. And one of my one of my big projects is helping to train the staff to improve their observations and to you know to try and record as much of the biodiversity here as possible because it really is a yeah, untouched and in, in many ways very unexplored part of the world, which is quite rare nowadays. I found the the mission of TCA to be to be quite interesting, and and I'm just going to read it for the benefit of our listeners. But I'd like you to expand upon it a bit. So the mission is to save lives in PNG, the lives of people, animals, and places. And I I found that statement to be quite intriguing because I've never seen or heard of a mission statement making such a, a direct connection between saving the lives of people, saving the lives of, of animals, and even the, the places. Why does TCA make that connection? What's the relevance of doing so? Yeah, it's, it's a great thing to point out. And to TCA, it's, it's an absolutely essential part of what we do. But it's not something that TCA has had to, has had to actively do. It, it sounds very nice on the TCA website and sounds very forward and up to date, but it's really something ingrained in the culture here already. And 
I think in the in the global north or the west, however you want to call it, we are increasingly divorced from nature. And you can see this in, in many ways in lots of conservation approaches. In in national parks, for instance, you know, formerly native peoples have been cleared off national park land in, in Southern Africa or America, say, and in general economic progress doesn't like to tolerate the the wilds and the untamed. But yeah, if if you come here, the natural world is it's very much a part of people's lives. It's it's what they use to build their houses. It's where they go to access their food. So to to think of the two of people, animals, and their places as somehow different just wouldn't be applicable here. Which is why it's necessary to put them under this umbrella. And I guess as a way of of, of demonstrating this, I had a rather touching moment recently at one of the villages we visited, and I was sharing stories about life in England and the differences between Papua New Guinea and, and England. And one thing I was trying to explain was that if I were to buy a house, or if I were to have a house in England, I, I'd have to buy it. I would have to buy the materials. I don't have land just to take the materials off. And there was, there was a lady who turned to me and said sorry. And it was one of the most genuine sorries I think I've ever heard, and I was rather touched by it. But But for me, thinking about it later, it shows... It showed the connection these people have to their lands, and it also showed showed me, I guess, what many people in the world have have lost in this connection. Now, let me ask you maybe a two part connection because I really want to draw this concept of the connection almost to an extreme. So, first, tell us a little bit about the tree kangaroos. You know their habitat, their lives. You know the threats of their survival and so on. But also, sure. in answering that. Draw the connection between the lives and the habitats of the tree kangaroos and those of us who are listening. So why does the habitat of a tree kangaroo matter to someone like me in the United States? I mean, we face the same question all the time with Global Conservation Corps. Why why do the health of rhinos and elephants in South Africa matter to those living in Europe and Asia? Absolutely. And it's it's a great question that certainly does need answering. And I'm sure, you know, as you alluded to, consistently is a question that, that arises. But going back to the tree kangaroos, there are there are 14 species in total, two of which are in Australia and the rest in New Guinea, and all belonging to the same genus. Well, until I found TCA, I was completely unaware of, and I'm sure many people are as well. They they feed mainly in the canopy of trees. About 90% of their diet is leaves, but they do occasionally come to the ground but that makes them very difficult to see i haven't seen one in the wild yet here and i suspect it'll be a long time before i do and and for those of you who who don't have an image in your mind they are they are very similar to kangaroos but adapted for for life in the trees so they they can hop on the ground but their back legs are they can move separately so imagine a, the, the typical australian kangaroo when it's hopping on the ground, those those two main legs are, are fixed in the same position as each other. Whereas the tree kangaroos here, those legs can move, mat legs can move independently, which helps them to climb trees. Now, as to your question as to you know why is it important? And I think it, it comes right down to one of the roots of you know the pro- people's problem with conservation and the question that conservationists do need to answer. You know, you can talk about ecosystem services or keystone species but 
But for me, the, the animal and nature itself, it justifies its place in the world on its own with, without it having to provide a value to our lives. You know, it doesn't need to be made relative to human needs for us to find a way or a reason to conserve it. And I think I can, can understand the question as well as to why an American say or an Englishman or European would say, OK, well, why do we need to care about Papua New Guinea? And I think, yeah, that's a very valid question. We have some of our own very real and pressing problems at home, you know, economically especially, and people are very right to ask, you know, well, why should our money go towards you know, helping some animal in a far-flung jungle on the other side of the world? But I think certainly in Europe, we, we own a responsibility, a social responsibility to help these countries. Colonialism and you know, the Western expansion into this part of the world has brought Great destruction, and you know one of the one of the biggest threats to tree kangaroos is monoculture farming and and logging, and I guess both of these things are products of our society expanding into this realm of the world, and for that reason, I think we have a very valid and a very urgent responsibility to assist in conservation in, in these corners of the world. That's that's some really great insight and very well said. So with all of that being said, what does the future of tree kangaroos look like? Obviously, Ten Kyle has made some progress, but three to four hundred of these kangaroos just still feels like a number that puts it, you know, each species on the edge of survival. So is it are things trending in the right direction despite the, you know, the risks of deforestation, farming, logging, and so on? Like, do you see a bright future ahead for the, the species? I, th- I think my, albeit limited experience of conservation, would lead me to be slightly too pessimistic to say the future is bright and everything's going to be wonderful and rosy for the tree kangaroos, but I am nevertheless positive. I can only speak for the tree kangaroos here within TCA's projects, but you know, the, the work that TCA has done over the last 20 years does demonstrate the effectiveness of a community and landowner sort of it's going to bottom up if you like conservation approach and the community engagement has been one really important part and one of the most successful parts of this product the people here have really i wouldn't say adopted because the chicken group already had a cultural significance but i guess adopted this cultural significance as a a motivation now for conserving it and it's tca has now provided a, a safe haven um, for the tree kangaroos, their numbers have increased, albeit to a still precarious 300 to 400 range. But hopefully this this is just the start, that their numbers can continue to increase and their ranges to expand as well. You mentioned community engagement. It's obviously very important to the work of, of Tenkao. What does community engagement look like? Is it you know specific to the you know, the habitat and well-being of tree kangaroos, or is it much broader based socioeconomic development to just foster a higher standard of living that yet balances the importance of natural health in in Papua New Guinea? Absolutely. So I think I'll take you back to the start of TCA. And the initial goal was to protect the tree kangaroo. And Jim and Jim and Jean Thomas, two zoologists from Australia, came here just over 20 years ago and you know it's to both of them at TCA and the people here and the tree kangaroos owe a great debt they 
implemented a hunting moratorium. So they went around 50 villages within the Torricelli mountain range and they educated people about the tree kangaroo, about the threats the tree kangaroos faced and persuaded them to sign a, a hunting moratorium because previously tree kangaroos were a prized part of the diet for many people here. They're very valuable protein source and very high quality meat. And I guess from that, it then led to a more cohesive approach that encompasses social economic development through projects such as clean water and solar energy. So I think in general, it's a very, it's a very effective and very useful paradigm for what conservation can and in many places should be. It's one thing saying protect the tree kangaroos, don't hunt them. But for the people, that is their livelihood. It's, it's their protein source. And it's a great debt that they are giving up to conserve something that perhaps in the West we might see as, as a given, that an animal that is critically endangered shouldn't be hunted. But here, obviously, that equation, when it comes down to you know, potentially life and death and the health of the people here, that equation is not so simple. But I think what that has led to is a really strong community buy-in and engagement with this project. TCA has been able to show that the, the benefits of conservation can trickle down to providing you know, development and health opportunities. And unfortunately, that is also economic reward is, is also an essential part here. The conservation is competing with logging, with mining, with intensive agriculture, and all of these avenues could provide very lucrative, albeit short-term, rewards for the people here. So TCA had to and still has to find a way for conservation to be a both economically and socially viable enterprise and way of life, if, if you like, for the people here. I'm going to ask a, perhaps a difficult question to answer, but it's, it's one that often comes to mind in conversations like this. How can... Those of us, you know, in this case, not in Papua New Guinea, not as courageous or brave as, as you who are willing to just take an adventure and move someplace to, to make a difference like this. How can we play a role in, in striking this balance between, again, socioeconomic development and respecting communities, the needs of communities, and protecting nature? I mean, it just it feels like so often... So many of us are just caught on the sidelines and wanting to help, wanting to play a role, but not sure what that role may look like. Yeah, absolutely. And to anyone who to ask that question, I I would of course be able to sympathize. You know, I lived in you know in London, one of the I guess biggest, most advanced in inverted commas cities in in the world, which is you know increasingly devoid of nature. So to anyone who ask that question, I, I certainly feel their pain. But I think something you touched on in that question, it is important. It doesn't have to be a magical, pristine place like Papua New Guinea for you to find that connection. I think it's our perceptions and our, and our reference points that need to move, not necessarily the person geographically. And I think that's a, a mind shift in general, something that I have that's kind of influenced me on on my little journey to, to Papua New Guinea has been a Buddhist philosophy. And, and I think the focus on the moment and you know time not being this kind of raging tolerance between 
past all the way to future and it being a string of progress, but focusing just on the moment and, and what is there at that time opens your eyes and is an especially valuable mindset for engaging with the natural world. And I think I'd, I'd encourage people to start in, in this regard to just to pay attention to your senses to what's around you. And before I came here, I read a, a book by an anthropologist called Paige West, who works in Papua New Guinea. And a little, there was a little quote that I'll read out that really touched me when I read it. And she said that when she was here, she asked one of the elders how they know the forest. And he just replied, my eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth, my teeth, my skin, my bones. And I think that sort of attitude gives access to the natural world to people. And if they pay, people start to pay attention with all their senses to what's around them. It can help spark and give access to you know, the ones of the natural world that are, are still there all around us. That was such a, a nice answer. And, and I found just really so much hope and inspiration in it. So I want to I want to keep going down this path, shall we say. And this, there's always a couple of questions that I like to use to wrap up the conversations. And the first is, you know, take us into the, the most special moment you've had in nature. You know, that one moment when you close your eyes and you just, you just see nature in that, in that moment. You know, maybe it's your time with TCA, Papua New Guinea, or even in London. Like when you say, I love nature, what's that moment that comes to your mind? I always slightly cringe at these questions when I ask for one moment, so I always find them really difficult to answer. I mean, last night would be one of them. I set up a just a white bed sheet and a a bright light last night on our, our balcony here, looking for or to see what it would attract and to start recording some of the moths here. And uh, a praying mantis landed on the bed sheet and it was about maybe 10 to 15 centimetres long, so... You know, quite a big insect and I just its movements as it it sways as it moves so it tries to imitate a leaf and it looks very much like a leaf and I just found myself watching this mantis in I guess I guess in awe really you could say uh, for about five minutes or so just watching and learning how it moves so that for me just going back to last night was a really special moment but there's also one that stands out from from when I was in the Seychelles and I was standing on the, the highest point of the island, which is only about 100 metres high, and there were hundreds, hundreds of seabirds above me, fairy terns and frigate birds, and it was a scene that I had been accustomed to before in the months that I'd been there. It wasn't anything new, but there was just a moment then of, I guess, wonder and feeling, I guess, the, the ego being you know, dissolved in that moment and feeling particularly small and realising the wonder of it and realising that that was a, an environment that I never wanted to truly leave behind and wanted to become more of a part of. So just one last question. You know, more than ever, and, and you, you touched on some of this in, earlier in the conversation, but nature seems to be at risk of, you know, lasting permanent damage, right? And, and there's all this pressure being put on nature by society, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for, for terrible reasons, but nevertheless, the pressure is being applied. Yet, I believe the work of TCA shows this, there's reasons to be hopeful. Why are you hopeful that you know, we can find ways to protect nature 
sustain those efforts to protect nature and yet ensure the the you know socioeconomic vitality for future generations yeah and i'm sure i'm sure if you ask any conservationists this is probably a question that keeps them both up at night and also gets them out of bed in the morning and i'm sure it's one that kind of bounces around the heads of of many in this field for me i would probably still go back to this link between people and and nature i think this the link between people and nature is a spark that is actually very close to the surface and it only just needs lighting in the right environment and last week i was at one of our local villages and i was showing pictures of a species of echidna which hasn't been seen here for about 40 years and we wanted to to try and establish whether it is still within the Torricelli mountain range and i got my phone out and i and i showed this picture and about 40 or 50 of these villages, which is you know, about probably half the population, were crowded around the phone. And this included five-year-olds and it included the elders of the village. And a few of the elders of the village knew this animal from when they were young, but knew that it hadn't been on their land for a long time. And obviously the youngsters you know, they had never seen this animal before. And this, through this interaction with just this one picture, it immediately brought the community together into this com- conversation about about this animal. And to me, that it just so, showed so easily the power of nature to bring people together if the right environment is, is brought about. And on the other side of the world, one more example I, w- I would bring up to emphasize that point would be, would be my dad. So you know, I'm sure wouldn't mind me saying wouldn't be the most naturally inclined person in the world he wouldn't necessarily know his great tip from his blue tip but when we a couple of christmases ago i brought him a, a bird box with a, a camera inside and to record the nesting of birds in it and a blue tit a bird from england nested in it that year in march and every morning he would get up and one of the first things he would do would be to switch on his ipad and to look at the progress of the nest and yeah, he would he would probably happily admit that yeah, the natural world is not something that, that sparks him and gets him out of bed in the morning every day. But just by having this this access to a moment like that, it still nevertheless sparked a um sparked a fire within him and sparked this, I guess I would say, instinctive interest. So a rather long and waffly answer, I think, but it's it's this connection between people and nature that I think just needs to be harnessed. It doesn't need a necessarily a conservation degree it doesn't necessarily need a scientific background it can be something so simple as looking at a bird nest or just paying attention to what's around you to to spark people's interest james that was a wonderful way to end this conversation thank you so much for your time today but more important thank you so much for for what you've done to to make a really deep and enduring commitment to saving nature for well those of us today but i think more important for for future generations. So just, I want to express a note of appreciation. And, and thank you very much as well, Bob, for, for having me. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you again and take care. Cheers, Bob. Well, 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 well. Mm-hmm.